Good morning. Glad you are here this morning. I want to remind you that once a month, we get together as a church to pray, and that's normally the third Monday of each month, and so that's tomorrow. From 6 to 7 at all of our campuses, we'll have a time to gather together. Now, we know we pray at a lot of different times and a lot of different ways, uh, but we come together as a church on that Monday to pray. And so there will be uh, um, a group praying at every campus. Here in the South Hills, in room 210, uh, 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 Gordon Hairstein will be leading that prayer time. The elders, are we're rotating, and so this month we are in Robinson uh, leading that prayer time, and the campus pastors will be leading the other prayer time. So at every campus, uh, there will be an opportunity for you to pray. We encourage you to do that. Uh, if you say, you know what, man, I, I just don't like to pray in a group, that's fine. There are going to be enough people there where you won't have to, and you can join uh, with the rest of those agreeing with them in prayer, and a great time to learn how to pray as well. Uh, so come 6 to 7 tomorrow and uh, be a part of that. Father, we thank you that you're a God who loves us and cares for us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us on a cross. Father, we pray that we would uh, celebrate that every day of our life, not only his death, but his resurrection that has changed us forever. As we look at your word, Lord, teach us as only you can do. Our hearts are, are often hardened, particularly in certain spots, and so we're praying that you soften them today. Our minds are, get to so easily distracted. And so we pray that you would focus us on what you want us to hear. And Lord, um, help, us to, help us to leave uh, different. Uh, help us to uh, hear from you and uh, determine uh, what we're going to do uh, to live a life pleasing to you in every facet uh, of, our, uh, of our life and every facet of our journey. So be with us, Lord, as we look at your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So on that week <clears throat> leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus went through um, uh, emotional extremes. On that first Palm Sunday, as he entered Jerusalem, there were these loud praises and shouts of Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then by week's end, there were those who were crying out to crucify him. He endured the praises on Sunday and by Friday, the, the pain of the cross. Standing at the cross on Friday were four people, Scripture tells us. Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary's sister, also named Mary, the wife of Clopas, a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene, three Marys, and then a young disciple named John. And they were there to see and hear and watch Jesus die. From the cross, Jesus looked down and spoke to this group, John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So John, at the request of Jesus, took Jesus' mother Mary and took care of her for the rest of our life, church history says, until she died in Jerusalem and then 
John moved to Ephesus, where he wrote the book that we're studying, 1 John. He also wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote 2nd and 3rd John. And for a while, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos and wrote the Revelation. So John not only walked with Jesus during his life, but he stood there at the cross. Just think about that. What would that have been like? John stood there at the cross, and he watched Jesus die. He had watched Jesus do miracles. He had watched Jesus raise a, a dead man to life just a few days earlier. And now he watched Jesus die. He saw the agony. He watched as they nailed the spikes through Jesus' hands, probably right here, just causing his hand to contort his feet. But the physical pain was just one part. John saw what he couldn't explain. While Jesus hung on the cross, the wrath of God, God's wrath on sin, was poured out on his son. And that's why Jesus cried out at one point, being fully God, fully man, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have even you forsaken me? And some commentators say that Jesus was saying, I don't know how much longer I can take this. It's God's wrath for your, for your sin and mine. It's just uncon- inconceivable, right? Was poured out on Jesus. And John saw that. John knew that Jesus died for sin. And so when John writes his gospel or his three letters or in Revelation, John takes sin very seriously. John takes sin very seriously. As we continue our study through this first letter, today we're going to consider chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. In this section, as we've seen in John, man, his words are, are like black and white. Sometimes his words are blunt. Sometimes his words are sharp. John tells it like it is. He doesn't beat around the bush. He wants us to know exactly who we are and where we stand with Jesus. So today, as we consider this passage, what I want to do is to read through the passage. Let's just get it in our mind, what John is saying. And then go back through and consider uh, each verse as John tells us that we have to take sin seriously. John chapter 3, verse 4, John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, Jesus did, in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor knows him, known him. Little children, John's uh, favorite term of endearment, little children, fellow believers, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. John, that's kind of blunt, isn't it? What he says. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of Satan, the devil. 
No one born of God, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In the previous section, John has told us that the Holy Spirit comes and lives in the life of the believer. He says we've been anointed by the Spirit. Paul would say we've been baptized by the Spirit. Sometimes we say we're indwelt by the Spirit. It's all the same thing. The Holy Spirit lives within us. And John says that changes things. We have been born from above. We have been born from within. There is a spiritual transformation that goes, that takes place in our life. And when John thinks about that and how that came to be with the death of Jesus on the cross, remember, he was right there. He saw it. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, behold or see what kind, he's amazed by this, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Can you believe it? What kind of love has God lavished on us? How great the love that God has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. This is from the one who was there when Jesus died on the cross. He saw the pain. He saw the agony. He heard the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He saw it get dark. He heard it thunder. He knew that this was something supernatural took place. And then he saw the risen Lord. John takes sin seriously. John's writing, in part, remember, because there's a lot of false teaching going on. And many teachers are downplaying sin. They're kind of indifferent to sin. They're just kind of brushing it aside. They are those who kind of downplay sin, treat it lightly. And so they would be probably saying things like this. You know, young people, don't get hung up on this obedience thing. If you want to sleep around, just sleep around. I mean, everybody's doing it. You don't want to be called prudish, do you? And you know what? Marriage, you know, it's, it works for some, but if you want to live together before you get married, that's fine. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't take a, te- a, tr- a car out for a test drive, right? How do you even know you're going to be able to, to be together if you don't try it out first? You just, you just don't worry about what God's Word says. You know, you just kind of do what you feel is, is best for you at the time. Adultery? Nah. Everybody has a little trust now and then, emotionally or, or, or visually with pornography or, or the real thing. I mean, come on, you're a man, right? Twisting the truth? Not a big deal. That's kind of how, how the world, I mean, if you're going to live in the world, that's kind of how it works. You gotta, if you're going to make the deal in business, you've got to kind of twist the truth a little bit. I mean, you've got to swim with the sharks. You've got to play with the sharks. Your language, the coarser the better. Doesn't really matter. Your money, use it however you want. It's your money. You just use it however you want. Buy this, buy another one of those, buy a third one of those. It's your money. You know what? There are a lot of people who have more money than you do. They can foot the bill for the church. They can foot the bill for other ministries. You got to use your money the way you want to. 
You, are, you worked hard for it. Sin, all this talk about sin, this kind of drags you down, doesn't it? I mean, it just gets old. It's tiring. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about forgiveness. Let's talk about positive things. That'll sell the books and fill the seats. That's what the false teachers were saying. John would say this, don't let them, what? Deceive you. John says, I know all about grace. I know all about forgiveness. I know all about love. But you have to take sin very seriously. Don't let anyone deceive you. Here's what John is saying in these seven verses. John's saying, very blunt, very straightforward, very black and white, right to the point. John says, without batting an eye, a lifestyle characterized by habitual sin is incompatible with being a child of God. A lifestyle of sin is incompatible with being a child of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sin, we'll come back to that, also practices lawlessness for sin is lawlessness. In Scripture, there are many ways that sin is described and defined. John 14, 17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, I know what's right, I'm just not going to do it. For him, that is sin. Later, in John chapter 5, 17, he'll say all wrongdoing is sin. And here he says lawlessness is sin. Lawlessness is simply breaking the law. It's doing the wrong thing. The law says, here's the line, you step over it. But we all know before any action takes place in our life, we have conceived it in our mind and we've harbored it in our heart. And so at base, lawlessness is rebellion against God. God, I don't care what you say. I don't, I, I don't care who you are. I, I'm going to believe what I want to believe regardless of what your word says. I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of what your word says. I'm going to do the thing I want to do, what's right in my own eyes at that particular time. I don't even know if you do exist, but if you do exist and I believe you do, I'm just going to pretend you don't. Rebellion is lawlessness. John says, don't buy that. The teachers are trying, the false teachers are trying to drag you away. They're trying to say sin's not a big deal. They're trying to say you can rebel against God all you want. John says, don't buy the lie. Chapter 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, that is sinful attitudes, sinful actions are the ruling principle of their life. Their life is characterized by habitual pattern of rebellion against God. I don't care if they said they were saved when they prayed the prayer by their bedside with their mom and dad when they were five. It doesn't matter if they were confirmed. 
It doesn't matter if they say, I was baptized. It doesn't matter if they say, I walked an aisle. It doesn't matter if they say, I signed a card. It doesn't matter if they say, I'm involved in all these Bible studies. It doesn't matter if they say, hey, I give generously. John says, if the practice of sinning is the ruling principle of your life that is incompatible with being a child of God incompatible. And John gives four strong arguments for this in this portion of his letter. First, he says, a person who makes a practice of sin does not know God. You can say you do, but your actions go against your words. My mom always used to tell me that. Actions speak louder than words, right? And so you can say it, but your actions deny what's coming out of your lips. A person who makes a practice of sinning, that is their life. They don't know God. John chapter 1, John chapter, uh, 1 John 3, the second part of verse 6. No one, no one who keeps on sinning, ruling pattern of their life, has either seen him or known him. John's not talking about intellectual assent. He's talking about having a personal relationship with the living God. You cannot have a life-changing, life-transforming relationship with the living God and continue practice of sinning. You just can't do it, John says. Secondly, a person who makes a practice of sinning is, John says, his words, of the devil. Look at uh, the first part of verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, ruling pattern of their life, habit of their life, is, John says it, of the devil. John can't, that's a little blunt, don't you think? John says that's the deal. Of the devil, for the devil has been sinning since the beginning. Remember, John has told us there's this world system out there. Satan is the prince of the world system. And that world system opposes God. And you're either in two camps. You're either in walking with the Lord, a child of God, or you're over here in the world. And John is saying you're either of God or you're of the devil. John's not saying you're demon-possessed. He's not saying you're a Satanist. He's not saying you have seances at your house. He is saying that your life demonstrates by a ruling pattern that you are opposing, that you're living in rebellion to God. You're not a murderer, but the general pattern of your life shows, shows, shows no indication that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 8. Jesus said, by the way, he said this to the religious leaders. He did not say this to the woman at the well who was on her seventh husband. He didn't say this to the lady who had uh, been caught in the act of committing adultery and was getting ready to get stoned. He didn't say this to the despised tax collectors, the, the sinners. He said this to the religious leaders whose pride had taken over their lives and who were living hypocritical. They said they, said they loved God, but their actions denied it. And to those people, John, Jesus said this, if God were your father, you would love me, 
For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you, underst- why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot, uh, you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the what? The devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. The devil was a created being and rebelled against God, kicked out of heaven, took a bunch of angels with him. John says he's been sinning from the beginning. If you are, life is, is, is characterized by habitual sin, that's the ruling pattern of your life, don't talk about when you came to Christ at five years old. You cannot be, it is incompatible with being a believer. John's words. Number three, a person who practices, makes a practice of sin is not born of God. John says, chapter 3, verse 9, no one, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. We'll get to that in a second. No one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. John is the one who introduces us to this theological uh, word born again. Remember uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus says, how do I have this eternal life? Jesus said, you must be born again. Being born again means there is a spiritual renewal. There is a spiritual transformation within. God's the one who initiates the process. Jesus is the one who purchased it for us. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit all things become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has been born again. There is a spiritual transformation. The old is gone. The new has come. Number four, John says, a person who makes a practice of sinning rejects what is right rejects what is right. First part of verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Black and white, it's pretty blunt. Whoever does not practice righteousness. Righteousness is simply doing the right thing. Whoever's, whoever has their life characterized, again, by habitual sin, not doing the right thing, John just says, don't play the game, don't pretend, it doesn't matter about the baptism or the confirmation or the walk in the aisle or the pray in the prayer, you are not of God. John says sin is serious. I stood at the cross and I watched Jesus die for sin. You can't be indifferent to it. If your life is characterized by sin, habitual sin, or, and there's no guilt and there's no remorse for it, you cannot have a relationship with Jesus, John's words. Now, as believers, we'll see in a second, as believers, we're going to sin. There are going to be acts of sin in word, thought, and deed consistently in our life. But doing acts of sin is different 
than having a life characterized by sin. If I was walking down the road, if I'm running in the morning and I tripped and fell in a mud puddle, that would not be a good thing, right? But I would get up out of the mud puddle and I'd keep going on. And eventually I would clean myself up. That's different than falling in a mud puddle and staying there and wallowing in it and enjoying just being dirty. That makes sense? There's going to be times when we fall, but we don't wallow in the mud puddle. The person John is talking about, they're just wallowing in a mud puddle. Their life is characterized by sin. Their life is characterized by an habitual pattern of sin. And John says, if you have a spiritual heartbeat, if you have a spiritual heartbeat, you cannot stay in the mud puddle. Not, it would be good, not, you know, it'd be good if you didn't. John says, you can't. As a believer, you can't stay in the mud puddle. You cannot stay in a life of sin. Here's why. Look at John chapter 3, verse 5. <clears throat> you know that he appeared <clears throat> to do what? What did Jesus come to do? Take away sins. And in him there is no sin. He came so that you wouldn't have to stay in a mud puddle. He came to take away your sins. He didn't come to leave you in your sins. He came to take away your sins. And when we trust in him, we know that our sins are taken away. They are forgiven. It's interesting that the first time Jesus is introduced to us, it's in the same fashion. John the Baptist, for, uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking down the road. And remember what he says? Behold, see, take notice, the Lamb of God, who what? who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was a great teacher, but he didn't come to be a great teacher. He's a great leader. Secular books are written on his leadership principles, but he didn't come to be a great leader. Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. That process of dying on the cross, John tells us in John chapter 2, verse 2, he uses one word to describe that. He uses the word propitiation. He is the propitiation for our sin. And that word propitiation simply means appeasement. God said back in Genesis chapter 2, if you eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, you're going to die. That's the rule. That's the law. Adam and Eve took from the fruit and death ultimately physical death, but right then spiritual death, spiritual separation from God took place right then and there because God is the righteous, truthful judge. He doesn't go back on his word. And so John chapter 3, verse 33 says, if we don't have Jesus, the wrath of God comes down upon us. And so we've looked at this little chart. Here's the wrath of God. It's coming down. And if we want to live life our way in our time, if we want to live over here in the world of the devil, then we're going to, then fine, we're going to take on the wrath of God. That's the result. But God said, I don't want you there. 
I love you too much for you to stay there. I'm going to make a way for you not to have to take on the wrath. And so he sent his son. If you have the son, you have life. The wrath still came because Jesus is a, God is a righteous judge. He doesn't go back on his word. He didn't say, I was just kidding about the tree in the garden. I was just kidding about the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin there is there, but Jesus took that penalty for us. He died on the cross. That's what John saw when Jesus was on the cross. He couldn't explain it because something supernatural was taking place, but the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. That's why John says, I take sin seriously. And when you trust in Jesus, you're protected. Jesus has delivered you. Jesus has taken the wrath of God for us. He came to take away sin. That's why we always, we look at this chart. Here we are, we come to Christ right here, right? And when we come to Christ, the cross is like this. In fact, when we come to Christ, we kind of say, you know what? People always say, I trusted in Jesus. Pretty cool, right? I trusted in Jesus. Subject being what? I. But then as we grow and, and we see the, the grace of God and the love of God and the, and the holiness of God, it just gets bigger in our life. And when we do that, we see our, our sinfulness, guess what? The cross just keeps getting a little bigger, doesn't it? Oh, man, Jesus did that for me. Oh, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. He's the one who initiated all this. The cross just keeps getting bigger. If you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time, then you are a Christian of a big cross. You are a Christian who understands the work of Jesus in your life. That drives pride away. That drives judgment away. That brings in humility. That brings in love. That brings in grace to others. Because Jesus, of what Jesus has done for you. The second thing John says, here's the reason why you cannot continue to wallow in sin and call yourself a Christian is at the end of verse 8. Here's what he says. The reason, here's the reason, the Son of God, Jesus, appeared. He, de- he appeared to destroy what? The works of the devil. You, you, if you are doing the works of the devil, you're of the devil, but Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, if you look around... We still live in a world where the prince of the world is pretty active, right? So what does it mean Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil? Because it looks like his works are still pretty much in play. Two things going on here. First of all, for those who trust in Christ, the works of the devil, the author of sin, the prince of the world, that is destroyed in our life. Every Christian, the works of the devil has been destroyed. If you put that verse back up there, this word destroyed is a great uh, word in the Greek. Uh, Sometimes it's used in the gospels for for unloosing the, the, um, the laces on a sandal. It means to loose. Uh, It means to, um, it means to free. 
it, it means to, uh, to release, to take away. Hear the words destroy. He, he released us from the works of the devil. So as a believer, we are released, we're free, we're loosed from the works of the devil. The works of the devil has been destroyed in our life. So that's the first part, right? That's happening right now. Eternity begins now. The second thing he does is one day he is going to destroy Satan forever and ever. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says that one day Satan will be taken and he will be thrown in the lake of fire, a description of hell. And there it says he will, re, he will be tormented day and night forever. We love that verse, don't we? 2010, Revelation. Go down four more, five more. 2015, you know what it says? Everyone whose name is not written in the book of life will have that same ending. Now that's a little solemn, isn't it? And so why are we so excited to tell people about the diner we just ate at? Why are we so excited to tell people about the cool sushi place we just ate at? And I did eat at a cool sushi place the other night. Why do we get all fired up about that? When those whose names are not written in the book of life will face eternity separated from God. So we like to talk about end times. Jesus is coming soon. If you really believe Jesus is coming soon, you better be telling everyone you know, your family, that he's coming soon. And here's how you can have a relationship with him. And here's what it looks like. You see, sin causes separation from God. Sin causes discontentment. It causes dissatisfaction. It causes disillusionment. It changes. It causes us to chase stuff that doesn't fulfill. Sin causes every disease. I'm not saying that if you have a disease, you have it because you've sinned. I'm saying we, our bodies are dying. We live in a world that's infected by disease. We live in a world infected by murder. Satan is the author of that. He's the author of every divorce. He's the author of every abuse. He's the author of every rape. He's the author of every person forced into prostitution and sex trafficking. And he's the one behind everyone who goes to and abuses those in prostitution and sex trafficking. Every torture, every terror, all authored by Satan. He's the one who leads us into sin. The believers, the believers been delivered from that. And then one day, it's all over for Satan himself. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And God forbid that anyone here today, Revelation 20, verse 15, would apply to them. Your name is not written in the book of life. And that's your same destination. Look at verse 6. John says, no one who abides in him, no one who has a relationship with the living God, no one who's truly trusted in Jesus as their 
Savior. I'm not talking about confirmation classes. I'm not talking about infant baptism. I'm not talking about praying or prayer. I'm talking about someone who truly trusted in Jesus Christ. No one who abides in him. No one keeps on sinning. John says that you can't do that. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Now, wait a second, John. I think you're contradicting yourself. Didn't you say, didn't you say back in uh, the first chapter, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us? I think I heard you say that. Pretty sure, pretty sure you did. And then two verses later, I heard you say, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John, what is it? If we keep on sinning, we're not a believer, but you just said, if we say we haven't sinned, then we're a liar. What's John saying here? Here's the difference. Remember, he's saying practicing sin, keeping on sinning. As a believer, we are going to commit acts of sin, word, thought, and deed. We are not going to be perfect until Jesus comes again, and then John says we're going to be like him, Christ-like, finally. But if a person, and then when we do sin, right, as a believer, we have 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As a believer, the Holy Spirit lives in us. The Holy Spirit says what you just thought is not a good thought. And so we have conviction on that. What you just did is not a good action. What you just said was a hurtful word. And so there's conviction there. And then we 1 John 1, 9, right? We confess our sin. God, I'm sorry. We're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we have the advocate, Jesus, saying, I paid for that sin. I died on the cross for that sin. That sin can't touch. They cannot be held accountable for that sin for eternity. I died for it. We have our advocate. But the person who just keeps on in sin habitual sin, John just says this, a true child of God cannot continue a lifestyle characterized by habitual sin, the ruling principle of their life. A true believer will not continue to sin. We've been released from that. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Here we go. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Okay, John, help us out here. Okay, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. John, tell me why. Because I'm, I sin. So tell me why a person of God cannot make a practice of sinning. Tell me why that person who says they're a believer when they were five years old and they haven't, they haven't given any indication of that for the last 15 years, tell me why that person can't be a Christian. John says, because God's seed abides in him. God's spirit is there in him. And when God's spirit is in a person and that person has been transformed and that person has been spiritually renewed and that person has been born again and God's spirit is there, that person, John says, cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. It's impossible. The Holy Spirit, will we sin? Yeah, and I don't know how long the stretch is going to be, right? David sinned, and the baby 
had adultery with Bathsheba, babies conceived and the baby was born. So there's a nine-month stretch. It doesn't look like David confessed. We're not here to say, well, you know, how long is it? Is it after a month? I'm not talking about that. John's just saying that when God's spirit lives in us, we cannot continue to sin. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at how this section started. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking the law, right? And John told us, if you were here a few times ago, John told us that there's the old covenant, and it's, it's, it's good, it sticks. Jesus came to fulfill the old covenant and gave us the new covenant, remember? And so the new covenant is really a summation of the old covenant, John said. And Jesus told us in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, if you love me, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you love one another. This is the new commandment that's really the old commandment. By this, check this out, by this all people will know what? That you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So John says, now let's get practical. Let's not be theoretical anymore. Let's get practical. If you have love for one another, look at verse 10. By this, it is evident that we are children of God. Sorry, by this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then John says, let's get practical. Let's nail this down. You want to know what this really looks like? Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Look at verse 11. For this is a message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death. Here's how we know. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love the brother abides in, uh, in death. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Jesus showed us what love is, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet does not, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John's saying this stuff gets practical. Jesus said, this is how you're going to know you're my disciple. If you love each other, if you demonstrate that, and the rest of the book is going to be focused on how do you do that? How do you love one another? Abiding in, in Christ is initiated by God, is purchased by Jesus, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the experience, right? But check this out. It's expressed in community. That's the evidence. And John says you can talk all day long about your love for God, but if you're not demonstrating it in community, and John says, how? How, how can you do that? How does God love abide in that person? The evidence. 
as we get ready to take communion. We're going to hold the bread and the cup in our, in our hands. And Jesus said, as often as you do this, remember me. Remember what I did for you. And when you're holding the bread and the cup in your hands, you're going to get two cups together. If you're a believer, you are welcome to take uh, communion with us. You do not have to be a member here. If you're not a believer, let it pass by. But as you hold that in your hands, I want to tell you, you are holding the symbol of the best news you'd ever, you've ever heard. The good news of Jesus Christ. And when you're holding that, Jesus who came to take away our sin, you can say in your heart, I am a child of the living God because of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of buzz today about, well, I'm broken. I'm a broken person. That's the buzzword. I am broken. Well, I got to tell you, with Jesus, you're not broken anymore. He fixed your heart. Will you still sin? Yeah. Are you still a mess? Yeah. But you are, you are a new creation. So live like it. I think if we talk about we're broken all the time, you know what we live like? Broken people. Now, I, someone said last night, oh, you, are you saying you just, you just speak it into your life? No, I'm not saying that. It's already there. The Holy Spirit abides in us. We're not speaking anything into our life. The Holy Spirit lives in us, and that changes us from the inside out. So we can live like children of God. The world is desperately needing to see what that looks like, right? We have been loosed. John tells us today, we have been loosed from the works of Satan in our life. We don't have to succumb to that. Will we sin sometimes? Yeah, but we want to grow in our walk. We want to see it grow. We want the cross to be bigger. And we want to be those who demonstrate to a watching world, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I'm not going around saying I'm broken all the time. I want to say, here's what Jesus did for me. Far from perfect, but I got to tell you, his grace and his love and his forgiveness is simply amazing. We get to show that off to a watching world. And we get to get ready for that when we take communion. Father, be with us as we hold the bread and the cup. Don't let us take this for granted. Help us to see what John saw as he stood at the foot of the cross. Help us be those who take sin seriously. Help us be those who not fool ourselves because 30 years ago we prayed a prayer but we've never given any evidence of your work in our life. Lord, help us to do uh, honest business with you. In Jesus' name, amen.